Coming up on Chopper's Politics. Yes, she was faithful to, to lots of things and faithful to her people and all of that. But actually, I think that I'd prefer to go back to the kind of medieval way of doing this. I would call her Elizabeth the Good, because that says everything. Hello and welcome to Chopper's Politics. I'm Christopher Hope, The Telegraph's Associate Editor for Politics. The Palace of Westminster is normally my workplace with the hustle and bustle of a busy Parliament building. Not now, not this week. The arrival of the late Queen means that the Palace of Westminster feels like, well, a palace again. Perhaps it should be called the People's Palace this week. I was in Westminster Hall on Thursday morning and it was a privilege to be able to see, well, people paying their respects to the coffin of the late Queen Elizabeth. Now, just like Westminster Hall, which encompasses politics, history and the monarchy, so too does this episode of Chopper's Politics. Later, I'll be talking to Simon Heffer, the Telegraph's columnist, about the late Queen's relationship with the 15 Prime Ministers who served her, from Winston Churchill to Liz Truss, born 101 years apart. And we'll be hearing from former Telegraph editor and now columnist Charles Moore on why the handover of the Crown has gone so smoothly. But first, we talk a lot on Chopper's politics about what politicians can learn from the past. So I thought, why not call up eminent historian Andrew Roberts to ask what he thought the new monarch could learn from history and the pitfalls that might face him. Andrew Roberts, welcome to Chopper's Politics. Great to have you on. Thank you very much indeed. It's a great honour to be on the show. Well, honoured to have you on. Now, listen, you're one of our preeminent historians. What advice would you give the new king? I would say to him, remember those three words that Churchill coined in the First World War, business as usual. Get um, it down to what the Queen was doing and stick to it. The menu is pretty heavy. There is a lot of work. It's it's very different from being Prince of Wales. It really is uh, much harder work. But the key thing is to get to the basics because I think when the British people see him doing all of those tasks that his mother did and doing them you know, more than competently, professionally and well, I think that uh, that will be the great uh, bedrock for his reign. And the pitfall then might be he hasn't moved on from being a campaigning prince, that he allows his old views to colour what he says in public, and that could be a problem politically. Well, the Prince of Wales is going to do that now. He has he has brilliantly set up a job for Princes of Wales. There was no job before. You had some who did occasionally important things, Edward VII with his uh, sitting on the uh, Royal Commission on the Housing of the Working Classes, for example. Others who did very little. Frankly, Edward VIII, when he was Prince of Wales, didn't do terribly much. But Prince Charles set it up as a, as a career, as a profession, as a very, very serious role. But he does doesn't have to do that now. In fact, he mustn't do that now. There is somebody to do that, and that's Prince William. Is it time for maybe like a, a way ahead committee that I think there was one established, wasn't there, in the, in the wake of the death of Diana, Princess of Wales, 25 years ago? Well, yes, but most of those recommendations seem to have already been put into effect. Of course, the the one that people will be watching out for is the slimming down of the monarchy. 
who's in, who's out, who's up, who's down. And it strikes me that this is something that, again, he's given a good deal of thought to. He'll know exactly what he wants. The only question, really, is whether or not the slimmed-down monarchy is actually going to be the individuals, the members of the royal family, are going to be so hard-worked that, in fact, they're going to need some more. And it's, <laughs> it's, it's, it's no, seriously, yeah. you know, there's going to be some time before Prince George and Princess Charlotte and Louis come online, as it were, you know. There's a good decade before that Well, 15 years. Imagine after university mainly, don't you imagine that would be then? Precisely. And you never know what the world's going to be like by then. But still, you've still got the huge numbers of uh, charities, the huge number of military units and visits that need to take place and Crown Commonwealth countries that need to be visited and so on and so on and so on. And let let alone the hospitals and museums and schools and so on. So you might beef up some titles, give Prince Edward the Duke of Edinburgh job that we think he's been promised for a while now, that kind of thing. And maybe bring in Eugenie and, and others or make use of some of the some of the marginal figures at the edge of the royal family. I think the Countess of Wessex as well, she's very much ready for a, a beefed up role. And of course, uh, poor Princess Anne, who works so hard, in fact, I think she works harder than any of the others, is going to have to keep that up as well, uh, whilst the, the sort of gap is finally made up. It's so a kind of Harry and Meghan sized gap, isn't it, really? <laughs> Essentially. Uh, I, did, I, w- I didn't want to, I was going out of my way not to mention that, Chris, but needless to say, yes, of course, the answer is yes to that. It's a, it's a precisely ha- Harry and Megan-sized gap. Do you worry who, who might be in his court? We ran an article the weekend by Gordon Rayner which talked of a friend of the king saying that he always collects interesting people and won't stop doing that. He asked them for beach weekends in Sandringham, lunches in Buckingham Palace. Uh, he has a convening power, really. But do you worry about who's in that group? Do you think he gets the right uh, advice? No, no, I don't worry about that at all. I think that's one of the interesting things about courts, you know. The, he, he's interested in a wide uh, variety of things. What he mustn't do is he mustn't let his private views impinge on the public statements. And, and so friendship is a completely different thing from that. Just on that very point then, 3pm last Saturday, um, the opposition leaders met with the new king in Buckingham Palace. There was Sir Keir Starmer, Labour leader, Ian Blackford, Westminster leader of the SNP, and Sir Ed Davey, who leads the Liberal Democrats. Now, I spotted the language of what was said. The king said to him, according to the pool clip, I haven't seen you for far too long. Ed Davey replied, I'd love to come to talk to you about similar issues on the environment and climate change in due course. And then he added, but first I can offer you my sincere condolences. Should that ring alarm bells in number 10 Downing Street? It should ring alarm bells with all of us that Ed Davey, the leader of a major British political party, should have such a tin ear that he tries to bring up politics at such a moment of condolence. Absolutely, it should ring alarm bells. But it shouldn't ring alarm bells as far as the king is concerned, because he knows the extent to which he can involve himself in in partisan politics. And the answer is not at all. That's right. Rowan Williams, the Archbishop of Canterbury, formally also said he should speak out on the environment. Obviously, he now is seen as a kind of John the Baptist figure, the king, in the way that he was a, he raised awareness of the environment when it's unfashionable to do so. Um, I, I wonder if you think that, I mean, should he have, uh, ignore those siren calls and just stick to talking privately to Liz Truss each week? 
I think it's ridiculous of somebody who's as well constitutionally versed as the Archbishop of Canterbury to try to upset our constitution. That is not what kings do. You're almost going back to Edward VIII saying something must be done when he visited the uh, South Wales coalfields, you know, whereas he had no idea about what to do and he knew he was going to abdicate anyway. It was profoundly irresponsible of him to have done that. And I don't think King Charles is an irresponsible person. He knows perfectly well what the constitution is and to try to fit in with the environmental views of the Archbishop of Canterbury the or, former the, former. or any other views of, sorry, former, uh, let alone the views of Ed Davey, would be a very difficult and dangerous road to go down. So we'll see some busyness from Prince Charles when he's, had, had, when he's come to terms with the past week, and that might take a few weeks. Do you envisage him travelling around the, the, the realms, the dozen or so realms where he's head of state? He needs to go somewhere, doesn't he? Canada, maybe, Australia. Well, um, Australia's already said that it's not going to hold a referendum on uh, the monarchy in the first term of this um, of this present government. So Australia doesn't really need to be absolutely top of the list. Canada, it's worthwhile going to. New Zealand, of course. The big question is whether or not the Caribbean nations are going to go their own way. I mean, they're all going to stay in the Commonwealth, of course. It's, the question is whether they stay in the Crown Commonwealth and also whether or not King Charles sort of bothers to fight it. It bothers to go out there and and try and change people's minds. There's quite a strong argument in the palace to say it's not worth it. And, you know, it's very much unto these people anyway. So so you're not necessarily going to be able to change people's mind. My sense is that actually it's a very good thing for these countries to stay in the Crown Commonwealth in a time when we're seeing a much more aggressive China when we have seen in the case of Barbados the change, major constitutional change of getting rid of the monarchy done by 29 people in Parliament without even a referendum. I think that there's nothing wrong with saying, look, yes, you can get rid of the monarchy, but it's got to be done on a, on a vote of the people. Have we discerned any kind of, in your, in your following, the, 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 I was in today in Westminster Hall, deeply moving, is it only a generation that's affected? Are the younger generation less affected? Are, are people less, less keen, more concerned about the hangover of empire? Or is it across the board, the morning you're experiencing? Well, what um, tends to happen is that people become more monarchist as they grow older anyway. So the mistake that a lot of people make is to say the 30-year-olds aren't interested in the monarchy and therefore in 30 or 40 years' time the monarchy will collapse. What they don't realise is that in 30 or 40 years' time those 30-year-olds are going to be 60 or 70 and they're going to become monarchists. So uh, it's the old story, you know, about, well, you get it in newspapers, don't you? We've got to get younger readers. Well, do you really? Because actually as you get older you're more likely to read the telegraph than whichever paper you're reading at the that's time that's right and you grow into being conservative uh, i think the average age when you turn from labor to tory is around 44 i think when you become a property owner well and also when you get experience you become wiser and you're and you <laughs> tend to be more intelligent uh, that's anyway. for a different different discussion <laughs> andy roberts <laughs> but of course what's the alternative i mean what is the alternative to i was discussing with a reporter from one of the big german newspapers this morning and they have uh, a president elected by, I think it's 200 people, uh, uh, you know, like an accession council, they vote on the best person for the job. Uh, the person is, almost has no profile really anywhere else in the world. And we have someone who's born into that job and, and they sit above politics, don't they? Well, they have done and they should do in the future. We have a better model. I mean, you can argue we against We have a the- much better model. The idea that we actually have a model whereby politicians are kept in their place, their hubris and their, and their big headedness is not um, essentially sucked up 
to, that instead we always have a power above a politician, however grand he or she might be, is something that is of inestimable value. Yes, it doesn't work in every country. Of course, it wouldn't work with um, modern day Germany. But boy, has it worked in Britain. We haven't had a revolution in this country for 300 years, you know. Mm, And in, in the Queen, the late Queen's passing, do you think she... Um, I think she gave a kind of final gift to the nation 48 hours before she died was to hand over power to a new prime minister and give some degree of certainty there. And to pass away, to die in Scotland meant that the Scots had the first chance to mourn her. And that's almost unifying as a, as a UK. We can't know what was going through her mind Obviously, but let's face it, it is tremendously fortuitous that she decided to stay at Balmoral in uh, July and August. And also, we know just from her sheer lifetime of courage that she did go and and do her her constitutional duties up to 48 hours before she died because she could have easily done it through Zoom, just as constitutionally right if she'd wanted to appoint Liz Truss by Zoom. But that wasn't her, was it? She's the woman who gets shot at in the mall, doesn't know whether it's uh, blanks or real bullets, and just continues on with the parade. That was 1981, was it? That's right. And uh, just continues on with the parade. You know, uh, that that kind of courage is absolutely built into her. Now, Andrew, we're thinking about the future of, of, of the monarchy. And um, it came to our attention, because I think you may have retweeted that the, 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 the article that you did write at the time of the death of, the, of the, the Princess of Wales, can the monarchy survive? And you said it could. Have you been proved right? I think I have on lots of uh, parts of that article. I'm very proud of that article. I reread it a couple of uh, days ago. And uh, I don't think the irritating thing is I'm not writing any better now as I was 25 <laughs> years it's ago. It's tailing off like most of us. <laughs> I know. I know. It's rather <laughs> nerve wracking at the age of 59 to realise. But I think uh, I think what I said in that article still stands. Finally, Boris Johnson in the House of Commons on Friday gave an amazing speech and a reminder of what a good speaker he was. He said she should be known as Elizabeth the Great. There's a guy called Lord Farmer, a former Tory party treasurer, says in today's Telegraph letters page, that's Thursday, that she should be known as Elizabeth the Faithful because the idea of conquering and and being being the great wasn't really a militaristic ruler. Firstly, what what epithet would you give to, to the late Queen and how will history judge her? I go some way towards um, Farmer's idea, but I don't think that it actually encompasses all of the very positive things about the Queen. Yes, she was faithful to, to lots of things, but I think that she was a much and more... And a Christian impressive. faith is the point. Uh, no, of course, absolutely, and faithful to her people and all of that. But actually, I think that I'd prefer to go back to the kind of medieval way of doing this. I would call her Elizabeth the Good, because that says everything. Andrew Roberts, uh, eminent historian, thank you for joining us this week on Chopper's Politics. A fascinating chat. Thank you. Thank you. Andrew Roberts there. Now, Charles Moore, the Telegraph's former editor and now a columnist of the paper, has met the Queen many times. This week, like me, he was in Westminster Hall to hear Charles III address MPs and peers for the first time. And he's been struck by how well the baton of power, the crown, has passed between the two monarchs. So I asked Charles Moore into the studio at the Telegraph to ask him, well, why that might be. Charles Moore, Lord Moore of Etchingham, welcome to Chopper's Politics. Great to have you on. Thank you, Chris. Can I ask, have you ever met the Queen? Yes, yeah. And how did you find her? Well, I think as people in general found her, 
which was, of course, supremely courteous and with this dignity, which is not intended to be alarming, but is alarming because you feel, you know, that you must mind your P's and Q's and you're in, in the presence of a great person. But also, perhaps slightly less well-known, this very, despite what I said about being so polite, there's a certain directness about her. So she's how I get to the point mm. of things. Mm. And um, could also be funny. There'd be a sort of wryness or a, a, a tart yes. comment. Not, again, not, never rude, mm. never personal, but um, something that made you laugh. Well, someone told me that she found most of life amusing, funny, apart from the very serious things, illnesses, mm-hmm. tragedies, but generally things that we might find worrying in our lives. She found she had this even view of such a long period of time being so senior in the country. She, she had a, a way of levelling that one out. I think even is a very good word for her. She dealt with everyone evenly. And she and all situations. dealt with events and situations evenly. And uh, I do remember, you know, once talking to her about all her prime ministers. And she sort of explained something which is obvious when you think about it, but which perhaps most people don't think about, is that these weren't her exact words at all, but it's all one to her. They come and they go. Yes. Things flow on. She has her role. And so the sort of drama that we tend to inject into our thinking about the relationship with prime ministers would not be there in her mind. This is just part of her job. She respects her prime ministers. She's important to get on with them well and so on. But there are a lot of them. And, uh, <laughs> and, and uh, uh, Yes, and if you add all the ones that um, are her prime ministers in other realms, you're dealing with, in her whole life, you're dealing with more than 100, I would say. And so she may have divined themes in that relationship between different, different prime ministers all the time. And so she managed that relationship not on a case-by-case basis, but that was how I dealt with my prime ministers in a certain way. I think that's right, and it has certain forms. But another thing that I think actually, funnily enough, relates to her strong Christian faith is that she believed in the saying of Jesus that um, take no thought for the morrow, uh, sufficient unto the day is the evil thereof, which, of course, is an odd thing because in a way she thought very long term about how to ensure the dynasty, ensure the happiness of the country and so on. But she felt she was so driven by duty and routine, she thought, or she acted as if she thought, sorry, I don't, of course, know exactly what she thought, that, um, you know, she'd get up in the morning and she would perform her tasks as best she possibly could and she wouldn't look back too much or forward too much and the task would be done and she said this on the record, I think, once that, uh, you know, and then she would retire to her bedroom and she would say her prayers and then the next day... Do her day, diary. And, uh, yes, do her diary and then the next day would begin. And, um, and so she was very good at keeping the things in the right proportion in the right compartment. Right until the final day. I mean, we're yes. recording this on, on Thursday afternoon. She had died by this time, 4pm Thursday afternoon a week ago. I think um, she was always very conscious of the need to perform a task that only she could perform. And there turned out to be at least two of them this year. One was the, to show up at the Platinum Jubilee. And the other, which, of course, she didn't know about until very shortly before it happened, was to receive a new prime minister and say goodbye to the old one. And by the way, in the Constitution, this is not a task that can be delegated. The Prince of Wales is not allowed to make someone prime minister. It has to be the monarch. So this is absolutely only she could do uh, this. And in person or by Zoom? Well, I think, <laughs> well, we don't know. There's no precedent, is there? But um, 
Uh, I suppose in extreme circumstances, it probably could be done by Zoom now, but it would have been very strange, and <laughs> yes. she wouldn't have liked it, and they wouldn't have liked it, and everyone would have felt a bit uneasy about it. So in her mind would have been this, I must do this. Mm. And um, talking to people who were with her at about that time, I find that um, she had such confidence and resilience about that that they actually underrated how frail she was. I think there was a general feeling among people who knew her well that she would die fairly soon, but it wasn't expected that it would be right now. Mm. And right up until almost the very last moment, she was up and about. She was on her stick, but she wasn't in bed mm. all day. And mentally, 100%, she was there at dinner. The um, male guests in black tie, and she changed for dinner, and the, the, the piper going around the table as usual, piping and, and so on, in just in the normal way. And um, I think that that went on almost to the very, very end. And it's a cliche that people would say, oh, that's how they would have wanted it. But I think that's very true in her case. Now, you wrote this week in The Telegraph, and we'll put a link to your article in the show notes to this episode, that the passing of the crown to Charles III has been like seeing the British Constitution working before our eyes in plain sight. What did you mean by that? Well, it's an odd disadvantage of the fact, one of the few disadvantages of the fact that the Queen Elizabeth reigned so long that we've slightly forgotten about how all this constitution works. But the constitutional doctrine of this country is, is what's called the crown in parliament. So that's how we're governed. The crown has virtually no actual power, but is the guarantee of legitimacy. And this became very clear to me visually sitting in Westminster Hall when the new king was addressed mm. uh, formally by the Lord Speaker and the Mr. Speaker on behalf of the two houses and then replied to their address. And it was a point specifically made by Mr. Speaker Hoyle that the roles, at least since 1688, the role of the monarch is to help, is to help guarantee the liberties of the people of this country. And that's done through the legitimacy of Parliament and the, and the electorate decide about who's in the House of Commons, but the ultimate legitimacy is upheld by the monarch. And you could see this happening. You could sort of feel it and see it. And actually, I can't think of another country where that would happen. And though people sometimes complain about the hereditary principle... Not for nothing is the phrase, the king is dead, long live the king. Or in this case, the queen is dead, long live the king. Um, it's instant. It happens straight away. And this gives a curious strength to the... Because it's always at the moment of transition that there's a danger. Mm. And so you've got to do it snap, bang, right away. And that also, by the way, in this case, in the British case, means that Charles is not only immediately king of the United Kingdom, but immediately king of all the other realms. Mm. So it actually makes it quite hard for Republicans in Australia or... Canada or whatever, to mm. jump in and prevent it. Do you think the monarchy is being strengthened by the past week? Uh, I think it's very much strengthened. And I'm pleased to notice that most people seem to understand the point that however marvellous the Queen was, the system is of immense importance. So a few people are saying she was great, Prince Charles won't be. But not many people are saying that. Mm. And there's no question of his legitimacy or the respect which goes to him as the monarch. I think that, that matters a lot. And the only thing I'm slightly worried about is there shouldn't be too much hero worship of the Queen. I mean, she deserves every sort of uh, <laughs> admiration. But um, the last thing she wanted, because she understood legitimacy, was for it just to be about her. In her view, it wasn't about her at all. It was about the monarchy. Just on that, where do you stand on the issue of Elizabeth the Great or the faithful? Well, um, on, on, on this podcast, Andrew Roberts has called her the good. What do you think? The good. Yes, the good. Um, I think these things, these are just names that popular opinion gradually gathers. So I would be happy to see it um, 
develop over time. I, I saw one of our readers had a thing in saying, um, surely the best way to commemorate her is to have the Royal Yacht Britannia um, again. And um, I'd rather like that idea, but I think that um, if you really wanted to get people to agree to it, because it's always been very controversial that, if you call it the Royal Yacht Elizabeth, you would uh, make it even more persuasive and people would agree that Britannia and Elizabeth uh, were the same. I'll allude to that, Charles Moore, absolutely. Um, the Royal Yacht Elizabeth. Charles Moore, have you been surprised by how quickly King Charles has been accepted? I mean, the walkabout was very swift, wasn't it, last Friday with Camilla? And it was almost a relief when the cheering happened and the long live the king and the response for it, uh, on the gates of Buckingham Palace was quite striking. It was a bold stroke of the prince to stop the car and get out. And no doubt a prepared bold stroke, but none the worse for that. And um, it worked. And actually, it did it should, did show in a good way how he might be different from the Queen because the Queen was v- always very reluctant to do anything which had an air of spontaneity. There was a, always a, a sense of quiet preparation. And this was a, was a, a more dramatic way of, of doing something. I think that the public over many years now has gone through in its head the problem of Prince Charles that arose because of Diana. Mm. And I think they've recognised, as we argued very strongly in the paper at the time, by the way, 25 years ago. When you edit her. Uh, yes, that, um, of course, he should be the king, and there's no reason to think he wouldn't be a good one and a conscientious one. But that has much become much easier to accept in recent years than yep. at the time. I wouldn't be so presumptuous to say he was ever on probation. He was always the heir. He was always going to be the king. But he understood that there's some problems. And I think he has overcome them. And part of that has been Queen Camilla, the, the Queen Consort. I mean, she has been the best for him, isn't she, really? Very good. And I was touched by watching her in these recent days because she was clearly so humble and I thought anxious looking for a good reason, which she, because she does not want to assume that she has the right to anything. She does have the right to it, but she's, not, she's the last person to assert that right. And so she's a little rather touching air of nervousness and, you know, please don't look at me sort of mm. aspect to it all, which I think is quite appropriate and will win people's hearts, has, has won people's hearts. And do you think the weight of what's happened in the past week has put all these rows with Harry and Meghan into some kind of perspective? We've given a lot of our time and thought to the Harry yeah. and Meghan situation, but it just seems to kind of fade away. Well, yes, of course, of course it does. I mean, speaking as a journalist, I can always see that Harry and Meghan are a sort of amusing copy. Mm. Um, so I don't blame the media for running such stories, but this certainly gives perspective. And, you know, rather like the Catholic Church, the English monarchy, British monarchy, uh, is a long game, a very long game. And therefore, people who play a short game, which I think unfortunately has been true of Meghan, lose. Mm. What can we expect on Monday? Will it be the last great royal funeral of this scale, do you think? We're facing a, a slimmed-down monarchy. The king wants that. Will we have a slimmed-down Funeral um, next time, uh, nothing on this scale. I, I never quite believe this uh, phrase about the slim-down monarchy because if you ask um, people, they always say they want a slim-down monarchy, but actually it's only partly true. They don't want an expensive monarchy, that's true, and they don't like the idea of people mucking around you know, but not without doing any work. But they do like a, um, a monarchy that has what people used to call magnificence. The drama of the, what's worn and of ceremony and so on is actually important to it all. But this will be the most amazing funeral, both because of the passage of immense passage of time and uh, because of the character of the person who's died. 
And so it will be a very, very um, solemn and remarkable. Well, what will moment. be the moment? I think back to Churchill's funeral in '65 and the cranes bowing towards the coffin when it was taken down the Thames on that barge. Is there anything which you think might stand out or just the sheer spectacle of it? I wouldn't like to predict, Mm. but what I think is always very important about funerals, which is quite different from celebrations or memorial services, is that they're profound, very profound, because you're in the presence of a dead body. So this is really the end. And um, this touches people very, very deeply, and it makes them think about parents they've lost, people who die in war, Mm. and it often makes them more religious as they think about the permanence of things. And, of course, that's all multiplied by many times in the case of the sovereign and, and re-multiplied by the nature of this sovereign. Well, Charles Moore, Lord Moore of Etchingham, thank you for joining us this week on Chopper's Politics. Thank you. Thank you. Now, do stay with us, listeners. Coming up, I'll be talking to The Telegraph's columnist, Simon Heffer, about the meeting we all wish we could listen in on, the audience between monarch and prime minister. Right after this. If you're finding this podcast interesting, you may also like our new daily podcast, Ukraine, the latest. Every weekday, The Telegraph's leading journalists bring you the latest news and the most informed analysis of President Putin's invasion of Ukraine. From our newsroom in London and from the ground. The Russian machine has been ground to a halt now for well over a week, and that is just staggering. NATO has to act now. It has to do more than it's currently doing. Otherwise, in this Ukrainian MP's words, you'll have to evacuate the whole continent. One video that we found to be incorrect was bomb squads seen in the Donbass region. The metadata of this clip shows that it was created in 2019, not today. Search Ukraine, the latest, in the same place you're listening to this, and click follow so you don't miss an update. Now, we've all seen the fictional depictions of audiences between Queen Elizabeth II and her many, 15 of them, Prime Ministers. Many through the work of dramatist Peter Morgan, who wrote the West End play titled The Audience, and his later blockbuster Netflix series The Crown. But can we say with any certainty what actually was said at these key meetings or what type of relationship the late Queen had with any of those 15 prime ministers who headed up her government during her reign? Well, someone who knows more than most is columnist Simon Heffer. He wrote a brilliant article for The Telegraph this week debunking myths about those meetings. Simon Heffer, welcome to Chopper's Politics. Well, thank you for asking me. Now, this week, we're devoting our time, of course, to discussing the monarchy, uh, the late Queen and and Charles III. What I thought was so fascinating was a piece you wrote for The Telegraph about how Queen Elizabeth proved to be a trusted confidant to all of her 15 prime ministers. And I was really struck by the, the fact she knew 15, from Churchill, born in 1874, to Liz Truss, born 101 years later in 1975. And that shows the, just the scale of just knowledge and um, experience and vision. And all through that time, the Prime Minister would have a weekly audience with the Queen. So, Simon Heffer, what is an audience? Well, it's when the Prime Minister, or indeed any other minister, goes and has a confidential word with the Sovereign. And the technical phrase is to have an audience of the Sovereign, not with her or him. And that's been going on ever since we've had a monarchy. And before we had Prime Minister, there were senior secretaries of state who go and have audiences with kings and queens. And it's where they frankly tell the king or queen what's going on. 
and the king or queen frankly shares his or her view with them. Now, of course, we have a constitutional monarchy now, and as Badgett said in the 1860s, and it hasn't really changed since then, the sovereign has the right to warn, to advise, and to be consulted. And so it's highly unlikely in the late Queen's reign, although history may, when the papers come out, tell us differently, that she ever said to her Prime Minister, no, you can't do that. She could say, well, you know, it's up to you to do it, you're the elected Prime Minister. But I warn you, it might not be a very good idea. And this is why these audiences always have and always must remain entirely confidential between the two players, because otherwise it could bring a government down. If a government did something that the monarch had advised Prime Minister not to do, and it did it and it went catastrophically wrong, then all hell would break loose. I mean, these things tend to go to the grave, and we just don't know what goes on. And just trying to establish, is, it, is, is the audience only with the Prime Minister or can the monarch meet other ministers on a one-to-one basis? Well, the, the monarch meets other ministers with the full knowledge of the Prime Minister. I don't name him because he's still alive, but there was a Defence Secretary who was summoned to Buckingham Palace after a change in defence policy. And he went into the room and the Queen remained seated and the Duke of Edinburgh was standing next to her. And the Queen, other than to say good morning and goodbye, said nothing, while the Duke of Edinburgh proceeded to give the minister an absolutely ferocious policy <laughs> about what was happening to the Navy. I mean, I heard that in a London club about 20 years ago, and I believe it's true. So that implies that, the, the, that Camilla could be in on these audiences, is that right, with, the, with the, new, the new monarch? Well, I don't think that because of the constitutional relationship between the king and his first minister, that, that she would ever be there. No. But... Um, if there were a minister coming in... Yes, understood, for a chat, yes. And it was something that the Queen was interested in, she might say, yes. can I turn up? Whether she would give him a bollocking in the way that I told the Duke of Edinburgh to the unfortunate man. That was a meeting without coffee, Simon. A meeting without coffee and without... I don't think he was ever invited to sit down either. Yes, not even sitting down. So, And, and how long do the, these audiences last? Are they for half an hour, an hour? They're normally 30 or 45 minutes. But Churchill, of course, famously used to talk to the Queen, we know this about racing, and uh, they went on for about two hours. Uh, but that, that's a very different matter altogether. Yeah. Now, there are 15 um, prime ministers who, who knew the Queen, most recently Liz Truss, for two days, serving our, our late monarch. Four of them were Labour prime ministers, Wilson, Callaghan, Blair, Brown. Did she prefer Labour prime ministers, as I'm going to say Netflix as the Crown suggests? Well, I mean, anybody who takes the Crown seriously. I, I was paid by our newspaper to watch her, how serious the Crown. <laughs> and write about it. And it was the most toxic crap I think I've ever seen in my life. It was it was largely invention, but it was put out there into the world as what really happened. Her late majesty would not have had a political preference for anybody. But but the same with us all. I mean, sometimes you meet people you just can't stand the sight of. And this you know, d- despite her saintly aspect, I'm sure that this was true of the late Queen. We do know that she got on well with Harold Wilson and with Jim Callaghan, who I think she found both of them rather sort of charming and avuncular. And I think also, there's always been a tradition among Labour Prime Ministers, and Tony Blair had it to an extent, where they are so concerned that the public think they're basically Bolsheviks, that when they come into contact with the monarchy, and Ramsay MacDonald was the same, they do everything they possibly can to be nice to it. So, of course, 
the late Queen liked these people. And of course she didn't like Ted Heath. Nobody liked Ted Heath. <laughs> and, and, and so less keen on, on the new Labour types. I had a theory about Tony Blair, Simon, which I did hear from sources in, in Westminster that Tony Blair's memory of the Garter was delayed until after Duke of Edinburgh died because the Duke couldn't forgive Tony Blair for his behaviour during a Queen Mother's funeral all those years ago and maybe a bit of the Diana funeral when, when he's sort of dictated to the monarchy. Do you think there was a, was a bit of distaste about Blair? Well, I can, I can believe that the Duke of Edinburgh would have thought it so. I mean, a, a lot of us at the time thought that he, he had to tread a very difficult tightrope when the late Princess of Wales was killed between keeping the country from having an outright sort of burst of hatred against the Queen and moving the Queen along to appease public sentiment. Although I thought that some of it was, a, was slightly nauseating, I think in the end he, he did well. It would be foolish if Duke of Edinburgh hadn't thought so. What I think went wrong was, you may remember, about uh, two months after the Princess of Wales was killed, it was the Duke's and the late Queen's golden wedding, and they did a walkabout. And for some reason, the Blairs accompanied them on the walkabout. Well, but there's, a, there's footage of them, um, I think, walking down Whitehall, and he is leading the walkabout. He's glad-handing people. So it's all about you, is it? So I think there was a, I think there was a sort of bit of Meghan Markle about Tony Blair. You see what I mean? So I can believe the story that the garter was delayed. But on the other hand, as I understood it, the late Queen and Tony Blair always got on very well because you know Tony Blair's a gent and he treated her like a monarch should be treated. The, 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 the disagreements do emerge, don't they? In your excellent article. Uh, maybe over Suez with Anthony Eden, apartheid with Thatcher. Yes, and I did well, the, the series of the Crown I was paid to watch by our newspaper. It was the one that had the Queen at that summit. And that conversation that she allegedly had, according to the Crown, with Mrs Thatcher was entirely impossible because the Queen was an immaculate constitutional monarch. And if her Prime Minister said, look, ma'am, I'm advising you uh, that you don't force us to impose sanctions on South Africa. The Queen might have said, well, I don't agree with you, Mrs. Thatcher, but of course I'll take your advice. And that would have been the end of it. If it had gone through as it did in the crowd, with the Queen getting really quite heavy about it, Mrs. Thatcher, who I knew extremely well, would have resigned. She would have said, well, ma'am, I don't have your confidence, I'm off. Uh, and uh, sent her someone like Michael Heseltine to run the country for her. And, and it seems to me from the article that the Prime Minister who, who gave most away about the meetings, or at least his relations with the Queen, and, and may have caused much displeasure, was David Cameron. Yes, well, I'm never sure that David Cameron knew how to behave in any respect, so I'm not remotely surprised about that. Because he talked about the referendum, that, 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 that he suggested he may have asked for her to intervene, and that became difficult. I mean, it has caused lot issues there, I think, with what Cameron disclosed about the Queen and her involvement. And when she made that point about think carefully at the Catholic Kirk on the eve of the vote in 2014. Yeah, I mean, Cameron's relationship with the Queen was an object lesson in how not to do it. You know, David Cameron was, was a PR man first and a politician second. What do you think he got wrong, Simon Heffer? What did he get wrong in your research? Well, he shouldn't have given any indication at all of any conversation he ever had with the monarch. Okay, if a, if a queen said to him, I hear you've got a cold, Mr. Cameron, I hope you're feeling better, that's probably all right. If she says, actually, I don't, I really don't want Scotland to become independent, that's a, an entirely wrong, because what would have happened if Scotland had voted to become independent? Where would that have left the monarchy? She would have had no choice, I suppose, but to abdicate his queen in Scotland. Well, we're looking now into, of course, Charles III's reign. It started. There's been, I think, one audience so far with Liz, Liz Truss, the Prime Minister. What's your advice to both parties to make it work? 
Well, we're in a very unusual position in that within two days we've got a new prime minister and a new monarch, so both of them are finding their feet. I suspect that the king is uh, far better prepared for this than Miss Truss, um, who uh, you know, was only aware a few weeks ago that she might become prime minister. The only advice one can give is that the king remembers he's no longer Prince of Wales. He said this in interviews, and he doesn't get involved in political matters and doesn't speak publicly about them. And if there's anything that's verging on the political that he wants to talk about, he talks to the Prime Minister first and makes sure that she doesn't have any objections. She advises the King, and she must expect the King to take her advice. If the King, for any reason, doesn't take her advice, then she has to resign. And, and that would cause real problems, so I don't think that's going to happen. They'll know how to do it because she, in particular, has civil servants who will tell her how all this is done. Yeah, there's Simon Case, who's this, um, he used to work for the Royal Household, didn't he, and now works for as Cabinet Secretary. Um, j- j- just finally, the relationship ends when they stop holding the office normally, but some former Prime Ministers carry on, don't they? We saw that in, in your article there, you say, say how John Major advised the Queen on Prince Harry and Prince William's, as they then were, um, finances. Yeah, I mean, because you're a privy councillor, and Major, for all his faults, he wasn't the world's greatest Prime Minister, Major always kept secrets and behaved properly towards the Queen. And it's not surprising that um, she should ask him for that advice. But, I mean, also, you know, I had the great privilege with my wife of being at Mrs Thatcher's 80th birthday party in 2005. And there was that poisonous Sunday Times story in 1986 that said that the Queen didn't like Mrs Thatcher. And, you know, Mrs Thatcher was a very strong-willed woman and could be difficult. And I wouldn't have been surprised at all if the Queen had had moments where she found her slightly trying. But the Queen turned up as guest of honour at Mrs Thatcher's 80th birthday party and led Mrs Thatcher around the room for Mrs Thatcher to introduce her the last time I'd met the Queen. And she went there, not out of duty, I think, but because she had a genuine affection for Mrs Thatcher. She realised what a truly great Prime Minister she had been and how she transformed this country. I think it was Her Late Majesty's way of saying, you know, I really value your service. And, and they were contemporaries. They were born within a few weeks of each other. And uh, I think they had a much better understanding of each other, despite all the differences of their background and everything else, than people imagine. So, yes, these relationships do last. And, of course, she's, she remained close to Churchill. And, Simon, have you, you're, on a, you're on a book tour. You're the editor of these extraordinary diaries by Chip Shannon. Did the Queen appear in the, in the diaries? Yeah, she does. She appears in, uh, in this volume. Well, actually, she appears in the first volume on the day she's born in 1926. And he says, remarkably, rather like Nostradamus, oh, I think that's our future sovereign who's been born, because he knows the Prince of Wales. And I think he knows that the Prince of Wales was either never going to marry, because he'd have a substring of mistresses, or he wouldn't actually get to the stage of being king. He correctly predicted that she would be our monarch. And then when she does become our monarch, he's very keen to be in with her. But they're of a different generation, and she doesn't see much in him, and she needs to be friends with him. And he, he refers to her as number one. I think he keeps hoping that number one is going to ring him up and ask him around for tea, but she never does. Well, our number one expert on the link between the, the monarch and 15 Prime Minister, Simon Heffer, our brilliant columnist. Thanks for joining us this week, and best of luck with the third volume of Chips Shannon's Brilliant Diaries. Thank you. Thank you, Chris. Well, thank you for listening to Chopper's Politics in this week of all weeks, this historic week. Let me know what you think of what my guest had to say. How about Elizabeth the Good? Email me, chopperspolitics at telegraph.co.uk or tweet me. We're at Chopper's Podcast. 
And if you're listening on your earphones as you wait to see Queen Elizabeth lying in state in that snaking queue around the Thames and the South Bank of London, well, I hope that we're keeping you company in the queue. As ever, please do sign up to my daily Chopper's Politics newsletter, bringing you the best Westminster insights straight into your email inbox every weekday. The link for that will be in the show notes to this episode, where you'll also find links to Charles Moore and Simon Heffer's brilliant articles about the Queen Elizabeth II. And as ever, be sure to check out my weekly Peterborough Diary column out at 7pm on Fridays online and in Saturday's Daily Telegraph. Once again, thank you to my guests this week, Andrew Roberts, Charles Moore, Lord Moore of Etchingham and Simon Heffer. Thank you to the brilliant team of producers behind this podcast, Giles Gear and Louisa Wells. And most of all, well, thank you for listening in this week of all weeks. Remember, if you can, please do buy a copy of the Daily Telegraph. You won't regret it. Until next time, though, cheerio. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.